This is an ABC podcast. After six months of looking for my friend, I finally found her. This text I sent was the end of that search. Hi, Alan. I think my friend Monica is buried in your cemetery. Could I come out there and meet you? Monica died in the pandemic. It took me that long to find her, in and out of two years of lockdowns, and because she was buried about 100 kilometres out of Melbourne, far from where she lived. I'm Miyuki Okiranta, and this is Earshot. In life, I promised to keep Monica company through a volunteer social service. In death, I promised to find her. When I finally found her, I met someone who's made a silent promise to people like Monica, state trustees of Victoria, with no next of kin and no funds for their funeral. It is only out in the middle of the paddock, but it's, we just like to make sure that where they're going is, um, we give them a helping hand. The keeper of forgotten souls, who now takes care of Monica. I was intrigued because she was younger, yeah, under 65, really friendly, private but open, so open about the things she wanted to talk about and private about other things that she didn't, quite cheeky. I really admired her resilience and um, determination. I mean, you know, one day she'd rock up and she said, oh, I just went to Tasmania on the weekend. What? (laughs) Sorry? She surprised me quite a few times with things that she'd get up and do. Marit Moilainen ran the social support service that partnered me up with Monica a few years ago. And, you know, you'd rock up and she goes, Marit. (laughs) Hello, Marit. (laughs) So with the rolling R and, yeah, just really, really happy to, to see you and, yeah, it was nice. The service matched younger with older Finns. I signed up because I wanted to feel connected to my community. My whole family's overseas. I thought I'd be taking someone to medical appointments or helping around the house. Monica, though, wanted someone to move through the world with. We met over coffee on the wide veranda that wrapped around the block of units where she lived. But we were soon shopping at plant nurseries, getting pedicures, she chose outrageous colours going for longer and longer drives together. There was always a smile or a laugh close at hand. Her laughter was like a two-stroke engine cycling underwater. But some topics were off limits. She wasn't born here because she spoke Finnish quite well and she had connections with cousins in Finland, but I believe that she grew up in Mount Isa there was some sort of falling out with her parents that she didn't really want to share. And she just seemed to be a bit of a drifter for a time. I remember she got quite touchy about putting down a next of kin, which we ask for if anything happens, who do we contact? She just really didn't want to put anything personal down for that. Over donuts and instant cappuccino mix, I learnt Monica was under the control of state trustees of Victoria. State trustees manage the financial and legal affairs of more than 11,000 Victorians who, due to mental illness, injury or disability, are unable to themselves. They managed Monica's finances doggedly. 
If she wanted to buy something other than the usual groceries, ciggies, cat food, she'd have to apply to have her funds released. She seemed to accept the fact that she was with state trustees and it worked, sort of, except when she wanted extra money for whatever it was that she needed. So I don't know whether she was quite unwell when that was maybe put into place and that's how then she ended up with the social housing situation as well. I was ashamed of how little Monica lived on, but she had no time for pity. I started bringing her flowers every time we met, making up excuses for the cost. They were on sale or picked from a friend's garden. Eventually, the justifications faded into the petals and her delighted smiles. The brighter, the better. She had a real community there that, um, you know, obviously you're not going to get on marvellously with everyone, but I know there was a couple of people that she did where she was quite close to, like Dougie. So her and Dougie used to go on long drives? Yeah. They used to get in the car at 10pm and then just drive up the old um, Hume Highway all the way up to Wandong. Yeah. And then just drive back again. Really? Just to do something, yeah. And they would do this once a week. Oh, wow. They would turn around at the Wandong pub and then come down. Monica said to me once, can we go to Wandong during the daytime? Because there's a cheesecake special in there and I really want to go and have it. So we drove out to Wandong one day so she could have the cheesecake that Dougie has never let her have. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. When did you hear that that Monica had become really ill? One of our co-workers there rang to say that Monica was in hospital and that she was quite ill. I ended up bringing the hospital to see if I could go and visit her because she had no one else and, um, well, other than you or anyone from the Finnish club. Um, But, you know, there was no visiting at all. The nurse was lovely and took the phone. I asked, could you take the phone to her? And um, she was unconscious, she wasn't awake. So I spoke to her in Finnish and English and cried and, you know, told her that, you know, we were with her and thinking of her and very sad to feel that she was there by herself. Yeah, because you told me about that phone call. Mm. And so I was following up the next day to do the same, hopefully. Yeah. And that's when they told me that she'd died. Mm. Did you receive condolence cards and bereavement guides from the hospice that she was in? No, no, I, I wasn't seen as a contact or anything, I don't think. I only remember talking to you and letting the state trustees know that we had some ideas about who her family might be and ask them specifically to let me know when things were moving. But nobody ever got in touch. David Andrews speaking. Hi, David. I've got you from the State Trustees, is that right? Yes, I'm a kid. Hopefully I can um, help you out this afternoon. I hope so. I'll do my best. David Andrews, Senior Advisor at State Trustees says the search is exhaustive to find friends and family when a state trustee dies. And the first thing, Mary, will be that we'll go to things like <coughs> referral sources, the financial administrators, carers, friends, doctors, landlords, social workers, you know, to try and work out, is there a will? Are there end-of-life wishes? Where did they live? Who are their friends? 
we will then arrange for an inspection of the premises, looking for things like wills, birth certificates, citizenships, cards, letters, families, you know, diaries, dress books. And if that's not successful, we can look for indexes like death database, internet searches for social media or the like. Having done all of those things, Mayuki, if there is sufficient money, we were able to do genealogy searches. So we actually put a fair bit of work into trying to locate family because that's clearly our preference. And so ultimately you would have gone through the majority of these steps when it came to Monica's death? Yes, there was contact with a, a range of people, carer supports, friends and the like of Monica that we had contact with at the time, yes. Two years after we met, Monica started to talk of family. A string of names, auntie's uncle, estranged brother. Once she drew me a family tree that looked more like a pinwheel. She didn't use the internet, so I printed a page of possible phone numbers for a cousin in Finland. She even asked the state trustees for the money to buy an international calling card, but she never did call. Marit and I weren't told when or where Monica would be buried. In late 2021, when Melbourne's lockdowns finally lifted, all I could do was find the funeral home and chapel where her service was held. Mauve walls, filtered light, and enough room seated for 80. A long walk to the altar. We're in our chapel at our Preston funeral home. I'm the managing director of Ern Jensen Funerals. I'm one of one generation of four generations of funeral directors in in my family. My name is Andrew Pinder. Monica passed away in a city hospital and we were told that she didn't have any known next of kin or any relatives. She was possibly from Finland and we're known to be funeral directors for state trustees clients. So we were asked to look after the funeral arrangements for Monica. And on the same day, we we placed a notice in the newspaper to appear the following day. And we were able to then organise a gathering in our Preston Chapel here. There were a number of classical pieces of music that were played. You never listen to classical music. Andrew's notes say one carer attended your service. Possibly. It couldn't be confirmed. Alone in the chapel, I imagine it full of flowers, people. You liked your space, but you loved company and the community you'd gathered around you. She had a lot of connections, but they weren't connected necessarily. So, yeah, that's frustrating to think that um, the whole person's not looked at in this situation and that they, you know, do have connections. We've missed out on being able to to send her off and um, play her Finnish country music. (laughs) Instead, between two pages of a departmental form, you slid into the endless time of lockdown. On paper, you had no next of kin, but it's a limited definition. I remember you asked me once if you could put me down as your emergency contact, your next of kin. I said no, 
not ready to cross the line from volunteer to friend to family. I wish I'd said yes. It might have been a month, six weeks in between. Just, you know, it struck me that nobody called and that, you know, how long can she sit in Preston for? You know, if they were doing any sort of memorial service or something that we would, you know, attend. And that's when they told you that she was buried in Old Balan? Yeah. Yeah. And had you ever heard of this place? No, not not Old Balan, but um, I can't. What's it called? An un, not unknown people, but um, basically, yeah. If you haven't got anyone to pay for your funeral, this is where you go. And Alan and his cemetery, the Old Balan Cemetery, have been excellent for over a decade now in keeping their costs low to look after state trustees' clients who don't have sufficient funds to be buried in an expensive Melbourne cemetery. Balan. I looked it up on my phone. A farming district closer to Ballarat than Melbourne, an hour and a half away by car. Oh, it's up along this back road. One of the ones where the tree went right on. Oh. oh, look, she's even got a beautiful headstone. I was wondering about that, yeah. How does that happen? Well, somebody must have paid for it. Okay. So, yeah, so you would have been able to find it anyway. Well, I don't know, I was roaming through here. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just dump that in there and we'll... Down the back? Just to, just spread, just put it in there. The state trustee section we'll is a out. sea of unsteady white crosses. You can read the names on the newer ones, but the names of the first buried have been buffed away by the relentless wind and rain, racing across Plains country. This cemetery lay dormant for a hundred years. Bluestone memorials, markers of an old geography, watch over new arrivals. As old as the old oak tree, felled by recent storms, snapping crosses and upending your headstone. Alan and I tilt it back into place. Yeah, that Slightly way. that way. Maintenance work on the sacred. Yeah. Oh, that's much better, yeah. And I tuck radiant orange lilies in behind your name. How do you feel being the kind of caretaker of all of these folk that have nowhere else to go? Um, if somebody's got to do it, and I'm quite happy doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would like to think that uh, when I pass, for whatever reasons, that somebody would look after me me the while I try and look after these people. <laughs> I can't say it's a job because I'm only a volunteer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no, somebody's got to do it. And uh, if I can give them a bit of dignity when they're here, that's it. I'm Alan Barr. I'm the secretary and everything else at the Blade uh, <laughs> Cemetery Trust. The, the cemetery that we're talking about here, the old cemetery, is out on the Geelong Road, five mile, eight kilometres out of town, and uh, they built that out there in 1850 was the first burial. At that stage, there'd been 460 people built buried there. And then uh, they moved into town to the new cemetery. And unfortunately, the, the records were lost. We know where 60 of the 460 are. The other 400, we haven't got any idea. Old Balan was reopened in 2007, 
and is currently the preferred cemetery for state trustees, with no next of kin and no funds for a funeral. So they come from all over Victoria. Since getting involved with the state trustees, I, I think we've buried nearly a, a thousand, for one of the better word, paupers or special needs. You know, we had one the other week from Robinvale, which is Mildura, you know, it's a long way away, long way away. One of the first ones I ever did was a, an 82-year-old lady. There was no one there, you know, it was just the two funeral directors, Grave Digger and I, and that's, that's who lowered the, the coffins. And, uh, and I thought, God, here's an 82-year-old lady, she must have had someone. But you know, I enjoy doing it, I enjoy getting out there and I enjoy talking to people. I like helping people. So there's also a, a lot of um, mowing and maintenance on vehicles and tractors and all sorts of things. And I grew up on a farm, so I, uh, I had a background of knowing that type of industry. So uh, I was probably training to do it for all those years. I didn't, just didn't know it. With a shipping container for an office, Alan and the local grave digger usually unlock the gates twice a week for funeral directors. And, and they normally send the same people up because they know the, the drill. And they, uh, because, you know, if you send somebody up for their first trip, they'd wonder what was going on with the mud and the blood and the beer and the... <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a different place, you know. There's no green mats or... We, we haven't got that luxury out there. I barely see the turn-off to Old Cemetery Road. Fog so thick is clinging to the car. I've asked if I could attend the burial of a state trustee, ready to wait weeks for a call. What about the day after tomorrow, they say. So I'm here again. The gate's unusually open. Excuse me, a hearse and Alan's Holden. Well, I might as well take the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you All right. Two funeral directors immaculately dressed. Thank you, sir. The Bobcat's engine cuts out. Yeah, my name's Lee. I work for Ern Jensen Funerals uh, in Preston, along with Michelle, my colleague here. Right. Okay. The boys are going to help you. Thank you. Well, what we'll do, um, we'll get help from the gentleman from the cemetery here, bring out the coffin, take it across the grave. I'll just say the Our Father, um, which is what we would normally do, um, as there's nobody in attendance. Um, they'll help us, we'll play at the bars and help us lower. Um, I've got some sand in the back of the hearse and we'll sprinkle some sand and, and that's about it. Nineteen degrees now, the mist's burning off. Black cows emerge over the fence, see us and scatter. Place the, place the flowers on. All right. Uh, may you rest in peace. And uh, I'll just say the Our Father, just as uh, just before we lower. All right. So, Our Father, throughout in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as those who forgive us. All right, okay, all right, thank you, all right, thank you. Suspended between the burial I'm witnessing and yours I missed is not closure or regret, but appreciation for this moment of recognition. I'm touched by this quiet funeral, just enough bodies to lower the coffin. I walk to the back row to bring you a posy of Canterbury Bells, tracking clumps of freshly dug clay soil. You can fill in now. The grave digger sprays a pink line along the new grave. We, we would be out here uh, three or four times a month, thereabouts. Occasionally you might get half a dozen people, even more, but 80% uh, of the time there's nobody. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're both wearing immaculate suits, uh, cravats, Beautiful ties, pins, name tags. Who is that for? That's out of respect, mm -hmm. and that's for our company. We always come up here like this. Yeah. There's, there's just, there's no question, no question about that at all. Yep. So, yep. It makes no difference that it's state trustee. Yep. It, it's still the same respect for each person. Yeah. Yep. I just think. Well, let's, let's do it as if there were a heap of mourners here. Alan is there every time, whether anyone else turns up or we couldn't get there. But try and extend your thanks, the debt you feel. And the thought rolls off his shoulders, lopsided from bad knees and a stubborn heart. Because it takes work to keep your promises. And that's how Alan keeps his promise, to provide these state trustees dignity in death, with work. He's starting the ride on mower, or worrying about where to store the historical ledgers so they're safe. His most visible act of care are the handmade white crosses that mark otherwise unmarked graves. The chap that was doing it before me at, at one stage was just making them out of timber, but of course the timber was uh, would rot in the ground, so we now use PVC fence droppers. And uh, I cut them up and, and screwed them together um, so that it makes a cross. And Carol, my wife, does the, the sign writing. So it's a, a family affair and then uh, and they're, they're put in. I found out state trustees used leftover money in your estate to pay for your headstone. But where the lifetime of objects you'd gathered, photos, knitting projects, journals ended up, they couldn't say. Unfortunately, we can't find anything that'll last forever. Alan is from the country and he is the soul of the earth from the country. He really is. He often does it for love. He really does. Everybody knows where everybody is and they are meticulously marked. This is a cheeky question. Mm -hmm. What happens when we run out of room? Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's still hopefully a while away. That'll, yeah. ho hopefully that's a while off, yeah. 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 
I haven't um, asked Alan what we're going to do about that. <laughs> I get called a lot of things. People sort of, you know, laughingly dodge me in the street. Don't you come near us. <laughs> You're only measuring us up. <laughs> You're the Grim Reaper. That's it. <laughs> Sorry. It's better if you back out here. Oh, oh, okay. All right. It, yeah. You can, you possibly can get around there, but we bogged a hearse from Taven Brothers. Yeah, better not do that. Easier yeah. to go this way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. And luckily, the boys have got a winch in the front of one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so they just hook the winch on and pull yeah. him out. Yeah. Yeah. Each time I come now, the helplessness, the guilt, the bleakness is being replaced with a well-trodden path, new rituals, bringing mud home in my shoes, and knowing that when I shut the gate behind me, it'll only be a day or two before Alan opens it up again. You see the, the, the other side of everything. You know, there's one there that I always remember is a, some chap. He was in his 60s and he, he died and... Uh, him and his mother had had a blue when he was 20. And neither one of them had been big enough to bury the hatchet in all that time. Anyway, when they found out, his mother found out, she actually, she was in Perth. One of her other sons was in, in England, another one in Queensland. Anyway, they all came, erected a uh, headstone and had a service. Yeah. But too late. At least they now know where he is and which it must be comforting in some way, but, but that's 40, 40 something years that life's too short to be fighting and doing those things. Do you worry about who will take over your job? Yeah, yeah, I do. And uh, that's something we're discussing at the moment, but uh, we'll see, we'll see. I, I'm, I'll, I'll hang on for now. No, I'd, I'd rather keep going. And, um, even though I've had a few health issues, um, it, I think it's good for me to have something to do um, and see where we go from there, see if I can find somebody that's silly enough to take it on. <laughs> what are you doing next week? <laughs> Is this a job interview? <laughs> <laughs> you do need to have, yeah, and, and when the funeral directors and that come up, you need to have jokes and that with them. It's no good being solemn all the time. I know, that could take you to an early grave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Corner <laughs> prize. <laughs> yeah. When I was first told you were somewhere on the outskirts of Ballarat, I imagine you packing for the trip a new sequined pink purse, smokes, a family sized box of Cadbury's Roses chocolates, the good cat food. You'd wear a striking orange knit scarf. I'd wear the little necklace you gave me for Christmas. Putting the pink waratah I hand you in an empty peanut butter jar, you say, can we go for a drive? I want to be outside. You know, when I'm leaving sometimes, if I've been mowing for the day, I might stop at the gate and look back and think, yeah, there you go. Oh, there's a couple of crosses up there that are falling over. I better go and fix them. Thanks, Tim Simons, for your deft sound work on The Keeper of Forgotten Souls. Next time on Earshot, 
Oscar Berry is 24 and has a rare genetic disorder, speech disability, epilepsy and cerebral palsy. When the NDIS launched, it promised people with a disability that they would get the support they needed to live their best lives. But in May, Oscar got his new NDIS plan and those dreams blew apart. So join me next time on Earshot for a promise frayed. I'm Yuki Ranta. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.